Hey Trojan fans, it's time to get into the huddle with the Peristyle Podcast. The Peristyle Podcast is your weekly ticket to USC football and recruiting news. Don't forget, you can download the podcast 24-7 at our website, peristylepodcast.com. And now, here's the host of the Peristyle Podcast, uscfootball.com publisher, Ryan Abraham. Hello, Trojan fans. Welcome to the Peristyle Podcast. It is a Wednesday, and we're doing a premium Trojan Blast recruiting podcast with our very own Gerard Martinez, National Recruiting Analyst for USCFootball.com. He's doing a great job. I hope you enjoyed all of his coverage and all of the team coverage we had on signing day. And we thought we'd do a little uh, kind of post-signing day a week later recap and answer all your questions because you guys sent in a whole bunch after signing day if you have questions podcast at uscfootball.com is the email address or you can go to our website peristylepodcast.com lots of uh ways to get a hold of us there a couple different voicemail lines and things like that so let's let's bring in gerard uh follow him on twitter at gmart live what is up gerard how are you doing good doing good still trying to recover from signing day um the grind continues no days off we're out there Saturday for the King of the IE Tournament. Shotgun was at the Pylon Tournament in Pacific Palisades, uh, which is almost out there by Malibu. And um, so, you know, still hitting it. Now we're in the 2018 recruiting cycle, and uh, we're going to see, uh, you know, some wants and needs, some target lists. we got to get all that stuff together for the 2018 class because recruiting never stops. It never does. And uh, I took a little break. I went away <laughs> for the weekend, but we'll be back out Again. there. Yeah, but we'll be back out there uh, this weekend. Uh, where are you going? Where are you sending me, Gerard? Gerard's the boss when this stuff happens. Where where am I going to be going this weekend? We're going to Buena Park, home of Knott's Berry Farm. Okay, all right. Maybe we'll uh, catch a little roller coaster ride or something. When we're out there doing some stuff. Um, I wish I haven't been to Knott's Berry Farm for a long time. My sister goes to Knott's Berry Farm every uh, Halloween, but I haven't been there. I haven't been there for years. <laughs> I haven't been to Disneyland in a while either. I was thinking about going to Disneyland with my niece, but it's like $200 a person to go to Disneyland now. So, yeah, all that stuff uh, has passed me by. I have not uh, been to many theme parks lately. Yeah, it's. Uh, I went with the Knoxbury Farm, I mean, the Scary Farm a couple of times. I don't know if I've ever been to the actual park, so I'll have to try to do that. Um, okay, well, we got a lot of questions. There's two voicemails by the same guy. He kind of left them back to back. Uh, I'll play them both for you, Gerard, and get your reaction. Here's the first one. Hey, what's up, Ryan? It's uh, Andrew calling from Fontana. Uh, recruiting, uh, National Signing Day just pretty much ended. USC closed out huge, uh, as they always do. Uh, really happy with, um, really happy with the players that we got. Personally, my, the two recruits that were, were a big thing for me were Jay Tufali and Marlon Tui Pelotu. Um, you know, those, those guys, for, for all the listeners listening to this, if you haven't checked out those two guys, uh, highlight tape, you might want to check it out. Um, I just want to say thanks to you and Gerard for all the amazing coverage you guys did. Spot on. And the only negative thing about this is doesn't make any uh, doesn't make the season come around any sooner. Spot on. And then uh, he had one more, Gerard. I'll play that one for you too. Hey Ryan, it's Andrew again. Uh, I just called in and forgot some things I wanted to say, but I guess that happens when you're talking to a voicemail. Um, last thing I just want to say, Clay Halton, um, man, I was pro Clay Halton from the get go. When we went one and three, uh, 
I said to myself, I think I made a mistake in, in, in you know, in, in liking the hire. Um, now he just closed out Rose Bowl champs and top five recruiting class um, via scout. Clay Houghton, let's go. National champs next season, baby. That was it. There you go. Is that yeah. the end? <laughs> that was the end. Sorry, yeah. <laughs> Mic drop. Boom. End of podcast. There you go. <laughs> I was waiting for a question. I thought he called back maybe because he forgot his question in the first phone call, but boom, calling from Fontana, the epicenter of football. There you go. <laughs> um, that's up your way, Gerard. But he was real happy, and I wanted to play uh, both of them for you. But it's good. I'm glad. I, and I think there's a lot of fans that are like that where after one and three start, um, they weren't, you know, weren't exactly happy and they're a lot happier now. USC probably wasn't as bad as they were at that one and three start. Are they as good as they are after winning nine games? We'll find out probably next year, but, uh, he's, I think he's in a group of a lot of fans that were kind of turned around last year by Clay Helton. Yeah. I mean, he said it, he was actually happy with the hire originally, which he would have been in the minority. I think a lot of people, not so much that it was Clay Helton. I think it was just the process in which USC went through to hire him. I think a lot of people were let down by that. They felt that it was similar to when they hired Steve Sarkeesian and there weren't enough candidates that were interviewed and vetted and they didn't go out and really look for guys that were qualified that already had head coaching experience. And I think that's what let down a lot of Trojan fans. But he was in the minority and felt like it was a good hire from the get-go. And then he, I guess he sort of lost faith a little bit there with the early season drubbings that they took against Alabama, Stanford, and then losing that game at Utah, which was a close game, uh, which was Sam Darnold's first uh, start. But, um, yeah, I, I mean, think the one thing he said that, you know, he was unfortunately uh, a little, you know, sad because he was going to see any real football until, you know, next year, next fall. But that's not necessarily true because we have spring ball coming up pretty soon. And I'm hearing it's going to be uh, probably first week of March. So that's closing in rather quickly. Uh, we're going to see uh, if USC can find a running backs coach before uh, <laughs> spring ball begins. They just lost Tommy Robinson to LSU, so there's a opening there on the assistant coaching staff for a running backs coach. Uh, we'll probably get into that maybe more in the war room. Don't really have a lot of information to share uh, right now on uh, a replacement for Tommy Robinson. But, you know, with spring ball, the one thing you can look forward to, and he talked about Marlon uh, Tui Polotu, Marlon Tuipolotu is going to be a part of spring ball. He's an early enrollee, mid-year grad, so he's going to be out there with Jack Sears. Um, you're going to have Taylor Katoa, linebacker, 6'2", 225, from Layton High School out there in Layton, uh, Utah. And um, I think there's one more early enrollee. Yeah, Andrew Voorhees, uh, the uh, 6'6", 295-pound offensive lineman from Kingsburg, California, uh, a three-star offensive lineman. He's also going to be a part of spring football. So you're going to have some of the 2017 class that's going to be out there here in March. So uh, get out there. I'm sure Clay Helton is going to have a few open practices for spring ball, and you're going to be able to see some of that 2000. 17 class in action well before fall certainly will um and yeah it's uh we'll have more information in the war room probably about tommy robinson i know we're not going to address it too much here but it was a little bit of a surprise for for dan weber we had him on the show he didn't think so you know we had heard things that it was you know the stuff i heard that was real was coming from lsu didn't really hear anything locally so i think he kept kind of quiet locally but we'll we'll try to put more in the war room for that um this is a, like kind of like a war room jerk. It's our premium podcast, but, uh, so all you subscribers out there, the new ones, the old ones, thanks very much. We, we decided to do these, you know, we'll try to do some, we'll do some free, but we're going to do a bunch of the better recruiting podcast premium because we want to give, you know, a little bit extra benefit for all our subscribers. 
Um, next question, Gerard. This is a voicemail one. Here we go. Hello, this is Daniel out of Los Angeles. Uh, quick question for the recruiting podcast, um, if anyone can answer. Uh, Jack Sears is getting a lot of hype. Uh, also on ESPN and I saw on the Pac-12 network, uh, his stats seem to uh, be almost identical to that of Sam Darnold's uh, his last year of high school. And they're saying this guy is the real deal. And uh, I don't know, uh, you said on a recruiting podcast that Matt Corral is the real deal, and he's the next year's quarterback. Um, is is Jack Sears gonna make Matt Corral Matt Corral start looking around the other places? And are you able to compare both of them? Like, who got a better upside, and who you think will be the better quarterback between Jack Sears and Matt Corral? Uh, because if if Sears is just saying how Sears how good this kid is really is, uh, do they really need Matt Corral? Thanks. This is Daniel. Fight on. Yeah, a lot of comparisons, obviously, between those two quarterbacks, but also a lot of comparisons with Jack Sears and Sam Darnold because they came from the same high school. There's differences, I guess, before getting into Corral and Sears, the differences between Sears and Darnold are that Darnold is really just a football player. In terms of his testing and his numbers, he's obviously mobile and he can make great plays in the pocket and outside of the pocket. And probably the latter is what really gave USC that shot in the arm offensively. They really, I think, were able to extend a lot of drives because Sam Darnold was able to get outside the pocket and get away from defenders and, and potential sacks or um, maybe even just uh, in the, I'm going to say interceptions, meaning just incomplete passes that could kill drives. He was able to kind of keep the drive going, keep the play alive, and be able to move the chains. And that's really just more opportunities for the offense uh, to make plays and get downfield. And, and that's what he provided. He sort of got that je ne sais quoi, that sort of magic Jake Plummer type of ability to scramble. But he's not necessarily a straight-up runner either. He's a guy that ran a 4.96.40 at the opening. And I think he had something like a 26-inch vert. Um, and, and you look at that compared to a guy like Sears, who's more of a 472 electronic 40 yard dash guy and, and something, you know, like closer probably to 30, uh, 34 inch vert. So he's a little more of an athlete, Jack Sears. Jack Sears, as Greg Biggins put it, you know, he's a guy that out of high school, you could legitimately probably put him at receiver and he would get division one scholarships. Whereas, Sam Darnold's a guy that you would probably put maybe a linebacker or something, and, and he would be getting scholarships there. And, and really out of high school, Utah, I think as a sophomore, offered Sam Darnold a scholarship as a linebacker. So that's kind of the difference between the two players. You sort of have the bigger, more physical, but still has the great awareness in the pocket and the great intangibles, and he's got quickness uh, in Sam Darnold. But then you have Sears, who I think is just more of a, uh, an athlete, a guy that can tuck it, and run and really make some plays happen downfield. Um, in terms of arm strength, I think Darnold's probably got a little more on him, and that's really sort of where the separation comes uh, when you're talking about Matt Corral as well. Matt Corral is, has got a big-time arm. He's very accurate. His ball placement is very good. And while he has mobility and he can get outside the pocket, that's not really the, 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 the thing, that the attribute that you would say highlights uh, his ability so much. Um, he's a guy that will take advantage of a defense if maybe they're in man coverage and the defensive secondary has completely turned his back and is just running downfield and he doesn't see a guy that's open. He'll tuck it and run, and he'll be able to get 10 yards on, on a play or 12 yards. But 
he's not going to be like Sears in terms of Sears could probably get maybe 20, 30 yards on a play like that just because of his speed. Now, whether Corral is looking at what Sears does, I think the one thing that we're going to have to take into account is that Sears is probably not going to play a whole lot, at least on Saturdays, with Sam Darnold there. Sam Darnold secured that spot, and by the time Matt Corral comes in, Sears, is, it, they're both going to be competing for that job. They're both going to be on the same field. And so you're not going to necessarily see Sears showcase unless you have Sam Darnold get hurt. Now, I do believe that Sears has the capability of overtaking Matt Fink on the depth chart. So if you know, Sears is second string and maybe something happens with Sam Darnold and then he has to come in and maybe Sears has an amazing game or all of a sudden he looks like he could be the guy, then you start to question, okay, maybe Matt Corral starts to look at that and he starts to think, okay, there's a guy that might be on his way to being established at that spot. I need to start looking at other schools. But until that happens, and if it doesn't happen, you're basically going to have Sears as a backup and you're not going to have him established. I think Corral is confident enough in his abilities and is really talented enough that he's going to come in and he's going to compete for that starting job when Sam Darnold leaves. Yeah, I love that. There's always a lot of talk about, I mean, you can bring in our quarterback a year and you're okay. Like, just because you recruit a quarterback doesn't mean you can't recruit one for three years. Like, you need to bring in a quarterback. So, um, yeah, you don't want to drop Matt Corral because you think Jack Sears is going to be good. You, you, you got them all. Um, now having two or three in one year, yeah, that's, that doesn't work out so well. We saw Ricky Town transfer out, but, um, you know, guys are successful. They redshirt a year, like a Sam Darnold. You know, he might start a year and a half and, and leave. Yeah, who knows? Um, Tark had a question, Gerard. He said, Coach Clay Helton said that Stephen Carr reminds him of Ezekiel Elliott. Do you buy that comparison? A little bit, because I've, I've seen that and I thought about that comparison myself. I think the big difference between Carr and Elliott would be just that initial burst. I think Elliott is a little more explosive. I think he bounces into the hole a little more. Um, I think he probably even may have a little more top end speed. Uh, I don't know if he had track times coming out of high school, but, you know, watching him in college and, and even watching him in the NFL, he's a guy that seems to be able to take it to the house. If he gets open and he gets in the secondary, he can break those, an- uh, those angles and, it, and he's able to actually score. So he's a guy instead of going 40, can usually go 80 if he gets that seam and he gets enough room to be able to get going. Where I think Carr is probably – maybe half a step behind and may not be able to take it to 80. Um, we're going to have to see. You know, I, I think obviously Carr's going to get bigger. He's going to get stronger um, in terms of their build. You know, I don't want to make too many comparisons because you just kind of have to see uh, where, where they end up. Um, but I think that uh, for me, I think Elliott's just a little more explosive getting into the hole and, and just that initial burst he has uh, when he finds that gap and he kind of gets upfield. And then maybe that top-end speed, I think maybe he has a little more top-end speed. I've always made the comparison with Carr, uh, which is maybe a little bit um, uh, obscure for, for people just because uh, maybe there's a lot of younger fans that never watched him play. But Clinton Portis, I still feel like, is, is a very good comparison with Stephen Carr just in terms of his ability to catch out of the backfield, um, not necessarily a, a burner, but a guy that really has great feet, can make people miss behind the line of scrimmage, can make something happen out of nothing, uh, but has enough power that he's a guy that can get the first down on third and three as well. So uh, just really an all-around really good back. I feel like Clint Portis is a a pretty good comparison with uh, Stephen Carr and and maybe, in my opinion, better than Ezekiel Elliott. All right. Um, I actually asked Clay Helton about that. 
And uh, he said Ezekiel Elliott. So uh, that was at the uh, press conference. Kurt had a question. He said, hey, Ryan and G-Mart, were the Trojans ever a legitimate slash serious contender to sign Aubrey Solomon? Thanks for taking the time to answer my question. Kurt. They were. They were a, a legitimate uh, option. I mean, from what I heard, kind of the last month of recruiting, it was USC and Michigan that he was down to. I don't know if that's necessarily true, and we never followed up, obviously, with, with Aubrey Solomon about that, and I don't know if he was ever asked that question at his actual ceremony, but we heard USC was very much in it. I think the biggest issue with USC is they just got to the party a little late. He had been committed to Michigan. He had a relationship with Michigan early on. I think USC really didn't start recruiting him hard until probably the end of summer, and then they got very involved, and he was from California. He still has family in Fresno. Um, so I, there was a lot that kind of worked for USC, and certainly the momentum of being able to win those games, and that kind of put them on the radar for, I think, a lot of national recruits, and that's what happens. We've always talked about the difference between in-state recruiting, local recruiting, and actual out-of-state recruiting. And when you win those big games, that's what starts to uh, get the attention of some of those kids that are out of state that maybe don't know a lot about USC, or if they know about USC, it's Matt Liner and it's Reggie Bush. They don't know about this current version of USC. So I think that kind of put them on the map. But at that point, you already had Michigan that he had already committed to and then decommitted, and then Alabama made a big surge for him. So USC was always sort of playing from behind. But the fact that they got, you know, maybe as high as his second choice uh, speaks to just, you know, the, again, the season and just how hard the staff worked uh, to be able to kind of recruit him and have contact with him. At the end of the day, his mom made a decision, and his mom was more comfortable with Michigan because they had that established relationship for longer. You know, there was also, I don't know any thoughts on this, Gerard, but his, I think the father's side of the family was from Fresno, and I, I'd heard there was some kind of, you know, I don't want to say a riff, but something that, you know, between the two sides of the family and maybe, you know, coming to California might have been, something that part of the family didn't want him to do because of the other part of the family was here. Have you heard anything along those lines? You know what? No, but that's, that makes a lot of sense. And, and I'm sure that that could have been a possibility. I mean, we've seen uh, a, a lot of that when you have, you know, a, a, a player who has really two different families because the mom and dad have divorced. Um, you have sort of a, a little bit of tug of war sometimes. And we saw that even with Darnay Holmes, you know, Darnay Holmes, dad wanted him at UCLA. He was friends with uh, Demetrius Martin, the defensive backs coach at UCLA, grew up with him and really felt loyalty to him. But his mother, who they don't live together anymore, his mother liked USC more. And there was a little feeling like maybe his mother just liked any school that the dad didn't like. You know, and there was a little bit of that factor. And, and Darnay Holmes kind of got pulled into the middle. And from my knowledge, I think Darnay lives with his dad, and, and, his, and his dad has obviously run his recruitment for a number of years. And so at the end of the day, his dad had more influence and more pull over his football career. But his mom liked USC, and that's really one of the main reasons why USC made such a, a push at the end. His mom and his sister just had a better relationship with the USC coaches. The USC coaches uh, had, had reached out and, and talked to him and, and you know, kind of realized his mom wasn't really a part of the process. So she, they made her a part of the process, and that was something that no other schools had done. So it, it almost worked for them. You know, I, I think if the dad didn't have such entrenched ties to UCLA and specifically the UCLA defensive backs coach, he would have ended up a Trojan. Let's go on to Ron, Northern Virginia. He said, like all Trojans, I'm thrilled by the amazing work that Clay Helton and his team accomplished 
both during the season and in recruiting. And while I'm in no hurry to see what Jack Sears can do as Sam Darnold's replacement, there's something I don't understand that hopefully you can explain. Sears is considered a pocket passer on the rating services when you watch all of his film. It's clear that he's extremely mobile and often ran for large chunks of yardage in high school. He appears to be more of a Russell Wilson-style quarterback than a pocket passer. Is there a scouting definition for a pocket passer versus a dual threat? And why would uh, why would Sears and I assume Sam Darnold be considered pocket passers with so much mobility? Thanks for fight on, Ron in Northern Virginia. Russell Wilson was, and I think would still be considered a pro style passer. I think the definition really comes down to is the quarterback a run first or pass first quarterback. So a dual threat quarterback is often looked at as a guy that his his main attribute is his athleticism and his ability to run the football. Whereas any quarterback who is looking to pass the football first, they're going to be categorized as a pro-style or pocket passer. Pocket passer is really sort of an, an outdated definition, and there's a lot of phrases and definitions that we're working with, I think, from a writing standpoint with the recruiting industry that are outdated. I've made several mentions of the word commitment and how we as an industry need to stop using that word commitment for kids that are making announcements that they want to go to a specific school but are still at the same time going to take all five official official visits and maybe even several more unofficial visits. Um, USC just had a a target, a safety target from St. John Bosco, Jaden Woodby, announced for Ohio State. That's a reserve commitment because Jaden Woodby is going to go through the recruiting process the same way he would even if he wasn't committed to Ohio State. He's still going to take visits. He's still going to look around. That commitment is not a commitment because the definition of a commitment does not coincide with the actions of what that recruit is doing. So why are we using that word? Well, because we've used that word for a long time. And that's that's dumb, that's foolish, but people are lazy and they just don't want to change it. And I think with pocket passer, that's sort of the same thing. Because when you're talking about a pocket passer, you're talking about a quarterback that really stays in the pocket the majority of the time. And that's obviously not true with Sam Darnold. And that's not even true with Jack Sears. And I think Jack Sears, may that's, that's a guy that really teeters on, is he a pro-style guy? Or is he a dual-threat guy? Pocket passer? No, he's not. That, that You could just throw that phrase out the door. But you talk about a pro style, and then you're talking about something different because obviously the pro game itself has evolved. And so you have quarterbacks that run outside the pocket that are mobile, but they are still pass-first quarterbacks. So you still want to use that definition to separate the two, pass-first being pro style and dual threat maybe being more of a run-first style. So I think, yeah, the definitions and the phrases and the language has to catch up a little bit with what we're seeing now with football. But if you want to know why Sam Darnold and Jack Sears are both being praised as being you know, pro-passers, that's why, because they are pass-first. And uh, Matt Corral, same thing, pass-first. It really becomes, is this quarterback, his main attribute really his legs, and he can pass the ball also. If you're saying that about the quarterback, then you're thinking about a guy that's really dual threat. All right, we got uh, Keith. He's from Oakland in the USC class of 2013. He said, I love listening to all the podcasts you do. Thank you, Keith. So he has three questions. I'll read them one at a time. Uh, one, if the scholarship math worked for USC to take a grad transfer, what position would Clay Helton target, if at all? Defensive line, uh, perhaps linebacker. Uh, the linebackers are fewer and far between. 
when it comes to grad transfers, and obviously the pool of grad transfers is always very small. USC may take even a transfer, though, at defensive line, or if they think they could get somebody at middle linebacker uh, that wasn't even a grad transfer, they might even take a player there as well. There's been a lot of talk about a lot of defensive linemen transferring and USC being interested in a lot of those defensive linemen. This is the Steven Tui Kolovatu effect. Uh, people see that USC got Stevie T and his success, and they immediately think that every guy that might want to transfer should transfer to USC, and he'll have just the same impact, which obviously is not true, but that's just the way things work. Uh, we've talked about uh, several guys whose names have come up. Um, Braden Fajoko is a guy that is transferring from Texas Tech. He is officially transferring. He has announced his transfer. He talked about about 20 schools, I think, that he's been in contact with since transferring. Uh, my sources say that USC is watching the situation. They may be in contact with him. Uh, they may want to you know, look at him a little further. There is some interest level. Uh, there's nothing you know, in the works. There's nothing specific that's happening right now. But there's a possibility because, again, defensive line, uh, they'll look at it. He is not a grad transfer, though. Uh, he is just a standard transfer, so I believe he has to set out a year um, unless he gets some kind of hardship waiver or what have you, uh, but he would just be a normal transfer. Josh Frazier's name's come up. He's a uh, 6'5", 360-pound defensive lineman from Alabama. Uh, I, my contacts in Alabama say that there's really not a whole lot going on uh, with talk of him transferring from that end. Now, certainly, sometimes that's the way it goes. You know, it's it's one of those things where maybe a kid does want to transfer. He's not going to announce it all over the world until it's actually official. And Alabama will probably continue to recruit him and try to make sure that he stays in the mix. Frazier did play last year, and he played well. He's actually played well for them. But uh, the spot that uh, he's competing with, I think it's Dalvin Tomlinson who's uh, graduated. Uh, they've got a few guys at that spot. So there's some competition there, and he's a junior. But that's another guy that's not going to be a grad transfer, to my knowledge. He would be a guy that would have to transfer and sit out a year. So we'll see how that goes. And, and I don't really actually know his eligibility situation in terms of red shirts and what have you off the top of my head. Um, but he's a junior now, so uh, he has limited amount of eligibility. Um, there's been other names. Devin Asiasi uh, as a tight end who's at Michigan right now, a guy that USC recruited very hard um, out of Concord de la Salle High School. He picked Michigan. There's been some chatter that, yeah, he may be uh, a little unhappy at Michigan right now. But tight end is not a position USC really has a lot of room at. I don't know that they would want to bring him in as a tight end. Now, if he wanted to come in and play as a defensive end, that would be a different story. Again, I think with the defensive line, um, that's a little more of a position as well. Uh, you can get a guy like Stevie Tuikolovatu and put him in there, and he can play right away. There's just less to worry about in terms of playbook, in terms of scheme. Um, defensive line, regardless of where you are, unless it's a, you know, the difference between a, a one-gap and a two-gap defense, you're really using the same techniques. There's not a whole lot to learn um, in terms of scheme. So you can get a guy and just plug him in right away. And so uh, I think that's one of the reasons why they would be more open to a transfer. But, again, Devin Asiasi, that would not be a grad transfer. That would be a guy that would be coming in transferring and have to sit out a year. Uh, so we'll see if anything happens there. Um, like I said, I, I think they would be a little more interested if he was coming in as a defensive lineman rather than a tight end. Well, from what I understand, he's 287 now, about 6'3", 6'4", 287. So that's a big tight end. 
I could see maybe Michigan has put some whispers into his ear about maybe moving the defensive line, and that's why he would want to transfer. UCLA is obviously going to be interested in him. Bas Tagaloa is a defensive lineman that was his teammate that went to UCLA out of that same recruiting class, uh, and UCLA could use all the help they could get. Uh, so they may say, hey, yeah, you know, we're going to run this, uh, this, this you know, Michigan-style um, offense, we're going to be hard-nosed, and we're going to have big tight ends, and we're going to run the ball all the time. Uh, their offensive coordinator just came over from Michigan. So, um, yeah, I could see there being, you know, some, some draw there, and it would be closer to home. Um, USC, I think, just with their numbers, because they're close to that 85. I mean, they're actually at 86 right now, but we're going to see some attrition. We're going to see some, some guys probably move and, and some things happening. And I think that 86 is with uh, Bubba Tucker and, or excuse me, Buda Tucker and um, Kevin Scott both on the roster still. And we don't know what's going to happen with them. I hear Buda Tucker good chance he stays on the team and he gets eligible and he's still part of the team. Not as sure uh, with Kevin Scott. He may have a little farther to go academically. So we'll see what happens with there. But there'll, there'll be room, I think, on the 85 when it comes down to it. But, again, it comes down to where do you want the pieces of those puzzles? Do you, do you want them to be on the defensive line or are you willing to take another player at a position where you might be comfortable with your depth? And I think with tight end, having signed follow – and uh, and Eric uh, Kromenhoek, I think they feel pretty good about the tight end depth. They would want a guy like Devin Asiasi to come in at defensive line. And uh, just a little insight, like I got it from a source today, Ger- Gerard, close to UCLA. They're hearing Asiasi will end up at UCLA. So just to take it for what it's worth, wouldn't be a shock, um, but that's what the latest I've heard. Um, let's see, his second question was, as spring practice approaches, which player, in your opinion, has the most at stake during the spring, and he wants one offensive player and one defensive player. Wow, one offensive player and one defensive player. That's um, that's an interesting question. I, I would say, I think Akili Ross has a, a lot at stake on defense. Um, now I wouldn't say at stake. I think that's sort of a weird way to kind of put it um i think in terms of who is who what what is spring ball who is it important to i think is probably the best way to phrase this i think it's very important to akili ross i think that because you have the two freshmen uh bubba bolden and isaiah polamal coming in and both those guys really fit profile wise what clancy pendergast wants in his defenders uh because he's been there he's red shirt now red shirt sophomore um, he's got a spot there that he can take. You know, you've got Leon McQuay gone, and uh, you've got a, a potential opening that, you know, he has to kind of take advantage of that. And he didn't play spring ball last year. He kind of got behind because he wasn't in spring ball. So I, I would think maybe it's very important for him to make as much out of spring ball as he can. Uh, I think uh, another guy that, that it's important, maybe not as important, and I know this is, you know, one and one, but I, I'll throw John Houston's name out there, I think, because you've got Michael Hutchings gone. That will linebacker spot is open. I don't think he necessarily has to make his move now, but I think it would definitely be uh, a good time for him to kind of step up and, and show that he can be the guy we saw in high school. And certainly he's got to get stronger. He's got to get a little bigger. But we've seen him with just, you know, not just the tangibles, but the intangibles that he has as a leader, 
the way he played at Sarah, uh, he could he could be a big time player for USC. So I mean, spring ball, you sort of want to see the light bulb go on for him and see him be able to flash again. I don't know if this is important with as it is with Ross, but I think it's still a good opportunity for him to make the most of it offensively. I think Chuma Doga probably at offensive tackle because you have both those offensive tackles uh, leaving in Zach Banner and Chad Wheeler. Uh, Chuma Doga, five-star guy out of McCarran High School in Georgia. Uh, a lot of people talking like he was going to transfer. He's not going to transfer. Uh, but this is a, a time for him to be able to step up and really solidify, whether it be at right tackle or left tackle. Um, I think you know he needs to come in, solidify, be consistent, and show that uh, he can be the guy that everybody thought he was going to be out of high school. And I throw in the whole group of like retro freshman wide receivers, which one of them is going to get in the mix. There's a lot of uh... – a lot of balls to be caught out there, and someone, one of those guys are going to have to step up. We've seen Pittman play last year. We don't know of any of the other guys, so um, that's not one player, but that'd be interesting to watch that group. Um, his last one is: Which freshman, redshirt or early enrollee, um, are you most excited to watch in the spring? One on offense and one on defense again. We got a lot of stuff from You're Keith here. Me. <laughs> capping me on this one in defense, one on offense. Uh, Jamel Cook comes to mind, you know, immediately. Like I said, with Ross, he's going to have a guy like Jamel Cook breathing down his throat, um, breathing down his neck, down his throat. That would be kind of uh, awkward. Um, breathing down his neck. I think, you know, just to see him 100% healthy because he, you know, come back from that foot injury. And we saw him a little bit during the fall, and he played a little bit certain during the bowl practices. He was active. But I'd just like to see him with reps and, and just, you know, he's got a year under his belt, uh, a redshirt year, which I think nobody would have anticipated he would have redshirted, but nobody knew he was going to get injured either. I'd like to see what he does. I don't know if he's going to be that single high safety. Um, he's a big boy. He is a big kid. I mean, he is legitimately 6'4", maybe almost 6'5 now, um, tall, rangy. We just got to see how what he's going to do. I would say on offense, Kerry Angeline is actually a guy that I'm excited to see. He is maybe the most natural receiver that USC has at the tight end position, and he's a legit 6'5", 6'6". He's probably about 230. See if he gets bigger and gets more to that 240, 245 range. Um, obviously, the blocking and the physical aspects of playing with his hand down, that's what he has to improve on. We know he can catch. He, he was catching the ball really well last fall. Um, now it's going to be, can he put it all together with being an inline blocker? Because he played a lot of wide receiver in high school. So the, the receiving skills are there. It's can he block, can he be tough, can he really run block and get guys off the line. That's going to be the big question. And I'd throw out there also, and you were kind of talking about this just a little bit ago, with the receivers. I mean, we're, we all want to see what receivers step up. Is it going to be that redshirt freshman group, um, that big group of five that they had uh, for the 2016 class? Tyler Vaughn's, you know, Tyler Vaughn showed a lot of flash uh, in, in, in fall camp last year. He just catches the ball. He just flat out catches the ball. He's not the fastest guy. He's not the biggest guy, but he just catches the football. The thing is, he was playing in the slot behind Deontay Deontay Burnett last year. So is he going to continue to play this slot, or maybe they're going to split him out wide and try to get him more reps, um, or you know they feel comfortable with what Burnett brings to the table, and maybe he gets more reps in the slot, and it becomes more about, like you said, Michael Pittman, or maybe uh, Josh uh, Imator Bebe, and those guys playing on the outside and, and trying to compete for Darius Rogers and Juju Schuster Smith spots. All right. Uh, good stuff there. Thanks for those questions, Keith. Let's, uh, let's go a little international question, uh, all the way from Tokyo, Steve in Tokyo. He said, Hey guys, uh, as strong as the last couple of recruiting classes have been, I can't help but notice the failure for USC to land all of the incredible slash 
local cornerback talent that's right in USC's own backyard. This year, we were able to land three-star Godfrey and four-star Johnson, which is good. But the year before, we only landed Jack Jones. That's only three true cornerbacks in two years. Then I see Oregon signing uh, SoCal four-star cornerbacks in Lenore, Red, and Graham. UCLA signs four-star Gates, Shaw, and five-star Holmes. Uh, four-star Hicks went to Cal, Taylor went to Washington, and Blades, Nebraska. With so many passing offenses, shouldn't we be signing more guys at this position? Thanks for all you do and fight on. Steve from Tokyo. Well, here's the thing. USC passed on almost all of those players. Uh, they had an opportunity to, to recruit Diamador Lenore, uh, Jalen Red, um, Elijah Gates. They just, just did not have interest in any of those guys. Really, Darnay Holmes and Elijah Blades are only two players in that group that USC pursued. And obviously they lost Holmes. Blades they just didn't have room for at the end of the day. And Blades has a lot of academic issues and even some off-field issues, which I think slowed USC from really pressing on him hard. And at the end of the day, and we talked about this at the podcast before signing day, it was going to come down to, okay, do we go after the third cornerback or do we bring in another defensive tackle? That's really where it came down to. That was really the the weighing of you know numbers and, and where you were going to take an extra player. And USC, I think, made the right move in taking an extra defensive lineman. I think it's harder to get good interior defensive linemen, and they over-recruited that position, whereas I think you're always going to have an opportunity to bring in some good defensive backs. Um, the next year's defensive back class – is okay. It, it looks like it's average, maybe above average. We haven't seen all the prospects out there yet, but um, they should be able to get another guy, I think, at corner that will rival the guys that they, they didn't get in this past class. But with the question, it, it's a little bit of a false premise because, you know, you look at what USC has recruited in past years. Jack Jones, uh, just there in 2016, was one of the top corners, if not the top corner in that class. Dory Jackson, Imam Marshall, uh, Isaiah Langley, I mean, they've done a pretty good job recruiting corners in the past. So it's not a position where they're really bad in terms of quality. It's just the quantity of depth that you're looking for. And sure, I think with uh, Jakari Godfrey, yeah, that's a little bit of a waiver. You don't know what's really going to happen with his knee. Does he really need surgery before um, he, he can participate in spring ball? It's going to be one of those things that I, I think that's that's going to be a question maybe all the way up until he's actually enrolled during the summer and then they kind of take a look at him again, and then they see how he moves, and then they might make that determination, yeah, we're going to have to do surgery, and that's going to be a red shirt, which maybe he had the red shirt already. But he's tall. He looks like he's got good speed on film. We had not seen him at any camps. We had not seen him at any national events or regional events to really see up close uh, how he plays against a competition. So that's why we say he's a bit of a waiver. And Greg Johnson and I talked about this in the class grades a piece that we put up this morning. Greg Johnson can play a number of positions. He's not maybe a true corner. He's a guy that could end up playing safety. We saw him at the Army All-American Bowl playing safety. He played that position well. That's always sort of been the position that I've seen him playing at. Uh, but he also can play running back. He's a guy that could be an all-purpose back. He played that for Hawkins High School and was uh, very, very productive at that position. So, yeah, that's, that's, that's a question. But they do have two pretty talented players at those positions. It's not like they didn't get anybody. They got two guys that, um, you know, one could be a, a sleeper. I know USC is, is pinning their hopes, hoping that he's like a market, Marcus Peterson, uh, Peters type guy, uh, that went to Washington and then was a first round pick and was with the Chiefs now and playing really well. 
um, from the same area, Bay Area. But, you know, we, we kind of don't know if that's going to happen or not. Um, and then Greg Johnson, uh, but he could play corner. Greg Johnson, I'm talking about all the positions he could play. He could end up playing corner and he could be good. Uh, but it's just one of those things that, you know, USC kind of went with the best players on the board. And those two guys, obviously, they fit that position. We're just going to have to see if they end up playing that position and are successful at that position long term or if they're not just there, you know, for the first half of the season and then they end up moving. We have one from Tarek. Uh, well, he wanted you to compare the quarterbacks, but we already talked about that. But he had another question um, comparing uh, Matt Corral and, and Jack Sears. But Tarek, we already did that one. So, But he also said, could you see Joseph Lewis, Deontay Burnett, and Michael Pittman being the starting receivers against Western Michigan? Hmm. Possibly. Possibly. I think, you know, Josh and Matorbebe is really good. I mean, he is really talented. I think he has explosiveness and athleticism that Juju Smith did not have, but has the same physical, powerful ability to break tackles, to get in the open field, to body up defensive backs just on his routes. He has a lot of the really nice tangibles that Juju Smith had, but then the added dimension of more athleticism. Now, is he just that instinctual, great football player, or is he just more of a combine hero, warrior, athlete type guy? That, that's kind of the question. I mean, obviously with Juju, he caught a lot of great passes and made a lot of amazing catches, and that, at the end of the day, is really what separated him and makes him a guy that's going to be an NFL player. Uh, he just caught the football. It didn't matter if somebody was draped on him or not. He could catch the football. We haven't seen that from Inventor Baby yet. We've seen that from his brother. His brother's made some pretty darn good catches, um, surprisingly. And so you think, you know, if I were to bet, I think that Josh, with a little bit of development, should end up being that guy. So I don't want to write him off. I don't want to say that, you know, he can't be a part of that. And he's a very smart kid. I think he processes the playbook well, and he's a guy that's going to run block. So I don't necessarily want to just, you know, push him aside for Joseph Lewis. I think with Joseph Lewis, and I've talked about this before, the biggest question for him to be able to be a starter, because this is the biggest difference. We're talking about, you know, contributing as opposed to starting. If you're starting, you've got to have consistency. It's about trust. The coaches have to trust you, and that's on offense and that's on defense. It's easy to put a guy in the rotation and have him in there for a few plays here and there because you know he can do something specific. But processing-wise, he may not know the playbook to stay in the game. He may not know the playbook to start the game from the beginning to the end. And that's going to be the biggest challenge for Joseph Lewis. It's going to be how much can he process the playbook, how much can he absorb, and, and how well can he run block? Can he understand the, the importance of being able to run block in this offense? Because in high school, you just don't do that. You're just not going to run block as a receiver the way you're going to have to in college. And so those are going to be the big transition for him, where you have a guy like Josh Matorbebe, who, like I said, ultra, ultra athletic. I mean, this is a guy who has like a freaking 43-inch vert. Um, he was one of the top ten spark rating guys at the opening finals last year when he was uh, a, a recruit last year being, you know, really 2015. Um, but he's a guy that's very explosive, and I think, you know, I, I wouldn't want to doubt him. And, again, I just think about what his brother has done, who came in as a lesser recruit as a transfer from Florida and a guy that a lot of people slept on, even including myself, and ended up being a real weapon for USC down the stretch. So, I mean, if his brother can be, you know, that good uh, and he has that much more athleticism, I, I don't know if that guy is not going to be able to push for a starting gig. 
We got a couple more. We'll let you go. Rudy says, uh, so does this mean USC only has 22 scholarships for next year? Uh, I'm not sure what, th- what he means by this. Uh, maybe I, I left the subject out of his email, but um, there's one blue shirt. So the most you could bring in would be 24. But I think he probably is talking about the 20, the 85 limit, Gerard. Uh, the 85 limit, well, we have 24 right now, um, being that USC would bring in for that class. You know, that it's so far away from <laughs> the season and just knowing, uh, what, what injuries might be by guys that are seniors that might redshirt, um, who's going to leave early. I mean, all that impacts, uh, what that 85 looks at, looks like when you're getting into, you know, January 2018. So, I mean, we couldn't project that right now. But in terms of what the class limit is going to be, it's going to be 24 as we speak right now. And so we move forward and we kind of get a better idea of that as we get kind of towards the end of the season is when you start to see, you know, how does it affect the actual 85 that they're going to have. This is an interesting question from Eric in Duck Country. If USC had the support staff that schools like Clemson and Alabama have, are there any targets they missed on? that you think they could have signed. Thanks for all the hard work and and uh, on those member-only podcasts, Eric and Duck Country. Wow, that's a real hypothetical question, man. I, I, I would say this, possibly. I mean, certainly you want to look at – well, here, let's look at this situation. Stevie Tui Kalavatu, we talked about him already. Uh, Stevie T would not be at USC if it was not for Kenyoto Hudson. Okay. Okay. Kenyo Hudson had a relationship there and was the main reason why Stevie Toy Kalavatu actually transferred to USC, believe it or not. Um, so there, there's an example of uh, support staff being huge in, in the acquisition of personnel. Now, that wasn't a recruit, but that's a guy that, because of a relationship, um, got a very impactful player on the roster. So certainly, I mean, you, you could have an addition of guys that have relationships in areas and with a high school coach or, or what have you, or maybe he coached at the high school and you bring those guys on and boom, all of a sudden you, you have an in with that player and you get that player um, that you wouldn't have got otherwise. But not knowing, you know, who you would be adding, it's tough to say. I, I think USC would have – Definitely um, more options than they did, I think. Uh, and their options were, were, were pretty good, and, and they obviously signed a really good class. So, you know, would it have been that much better? I, I don't know. But certainly, uh, there's, I'm sure there's players out there that have coaches or have relationships with people that if USC would have hired those people, yeah, maybe they would have had a better chance at them. But it's really hypothetical. I, I couldn't, you know, name recruits if, if, you know, USC had this specific guy as a staff member they would have got this specific recruit no it wasn't like Rashawn Gary where Michigan went out and hired uh his head coach at that high school <laughs> the year before and then they followed up and recruited him and got him but that's another example of how you know support staff and and coaches and relationships mean in recruiting yeah you can't do that anymore right they're not allowed to do I think that's like a new rule like another hardball rule or something I thought so maybe I not. guess so maybe I, I was know. maybe we'll I'm, see uh, um, one last one from Irvin and we, so this is a 2018 one. So we'll, this will be our transition, Gerard, from, uh, 2017 to all the rest of the podcast being 2018. We're likely. officially leaving 2017 behind. We're leaving it we're behind. In the, we're in the future. A week away from signing day. He said, besides <laughs> the committed linebackers for the class of 2018, 
who are some of the other top linebacker targets for USC during the next recruiting cycle? That's Irvin. So he must be a, a big linebacker fan. Yeah, and USC needs to recruit inside linebackers specifically for the next class. We don't know what's going to happen with Cameron Smith, but that's the one position where they don't have a lot of depth. Um, they did sign two players in this class that are projected to play inside linebacker, Taylor Katoa, who is going to be on campus and he's going to be a part of spring ball. He's about 225, maybe pushing 230. Uh, so we'll see what kind of impact he can make, if he can contribute. You know, with linebackers and safeties, that's two positions where – Special teams, you know, they can they can contribute on special teams a lot. So you don't know if you're going to actually redshirt a guy, uh, even if he's not ready to step in and play the linebacker position or the safety position. You still have special teams in that opportunity that those guys can can contribute there. Um, so you know, Taylor Katoa is on campus, and they're also going to have Levi Jones, who's about six three two fifteen. He's got to put on weight to be able to to really play inside linebacker. The thing is, he's got great bloodlines, and I kind of mentioned this in the grades piece. You know, his his brother Caleb uh, is starting or not starting receiver but playing wide receiver right now for the Minnesota Vikings um his other brother who's actually smaller he's more like a slot receiver um they call him Zay he's Isaiah he plays for ECU he actually broke the uh, I think it's a single season record for receptions the NCAA record uh, last year for ECU uh, and then his dad Robert played 10 years in the NFL as a linebacker so the bloodlines there for Levi Jones are, are really good, and, and you kind of expect, you know, he'll put on the weight, he'll get there. It's just going to be a matter of time. Um, how much is he going to be able to contribute? Is he going to be able to really, you know, compete for that starting will spot to replace Michael Hutchings? I, I would probably bet against it. I think he's just a little too lean. But, like I said, the talent's there, and, you know, maybe he surprises people and gains, you know, 10, 15 pounds, uh, you know, before he even gets on campus. So we'll see what happens with that. With the 2018 class, though, it works out for USC because it is a pretty deep class at linebacker. I mean, we already have uh, a couple commitments from linebacker. I think an inside linebacker guy uh, that they have committed right now will be Raymond Scott. Um, he's about 6'1", probably 220, 225 right now. Um, he'll end up playing inside linebacker, and they have him recruited and committed, um, whatever that means at this point in the year. Uh, but there's also uh, some other guys that, that probably are even going to be higher in terms of their rating and, and maybe end up higher on USC's board. Um, the one guy who's going to be a national recruit is Palaie Geote Ote, who's from Bishop Gorman. Um, he is uh, probably one of, if not the best linebacker that we've seen from that 2018 class. Uh, he's a guy that is a warrior. He is sideline to sideline. He is physical. Um, he really has all the tangibles and intangibles of a guy that really probably could step on campus as a true freshman and make an impact. So that's a guy that's going to be high on USC's list. They're going to continue to recruit him really hard. Uh, another guy who we just saw this past weekend playing for primetime Polynesian is Solomon uh, Tuliaupupu. Uh, Solomon Nokia Stroud Tuliaupupu for his full name that he uses sometimes. Uh, he's uh, about 6'2", probably about 225, uh, 225 right now. Um, he cut his hair and totally threw me off because I was looking for him, and he had this long hair, but he's buzz cut. He's at modern day Catholic school, parochial school. I think they wear uniforms, so probably was part of it. Like, yeah, you got to buzz your hair like you're going to the Marines. Um, but he's a guy that's uh, just, uh, man, just reckless, just a crazy, you know, just throw his body. I mean, seven on seven, and, and we may see that this weekend. Uh, 
he's kind of a bull in a china shop a little bit. I mean, he was making some hits, and he was throwing some forearms and some elbows on some of those crossing routes, which you're not allowed to do in seven-on-seven. And so he had a few different discussions and conversations with the officials. Uh, He's got to kind of watch that because in a a more um, strict seven-on-seven um, type environment where you have more, I think, more teams and more people watching uh, because this I, King and IE was kind of a laid-back tournament. I think in one of some of the more um, intense tournaments, uh, there's going to be some issues. You're going to see some people getting in some fights with uh, those type of plays. But he is physical. He is intense. He's fast. Uh, he's a guy that USC will recruit really hard, and he already has a very good relationship with Johnny Nansen. USC has offered scholarships already to Ote Ote and uh, Tuli Alapupu. So uh, get those names down, folks. When we get those uh, voicemails, I want to hear those names pronounced correctly. <laughs> Don't give us this half-ass ST linebacker and the guy from Bishop Gorman. You guys got to use those last names. Um, and Merlin Robertson's another guy with a, a scholarship offer who's an inside linebacker, I think, at the next level, um, 6'2", 225. Uh, he was out there also Saturday. Um, probably not quite as athletic as the former two linebackers, uh, but still a, a very good player. And, again, depth-wise, I think if USC you want to try to bring in uh, a few of those guys. I don't know what numbers we're talking about right now, but – you know, probably two or three guys that can legitimately play inside linebacker you want to recruit for that 2018 class. So um, it's a good group locally and a good group regionally. Nationally, we really haven't necessarily – I haven't really seen what's available and, and who USC is really going to be able to recruit. That's going to come with time. And so we get you know, a little farther into the spring, we'll start to know uh, what guys they might have uh, some traction with um, that they can bring in uh, maybe outside of the region. But, you know, maybe they don't really even have to go that far. Like I said, they've got a guy at Bishop O'Gorman, they've got a guy at Modern Day, and they've got a guy at Sarah uh, that are all pretty high on USC, and uh, USC is going to recruit pretty hard, and they're good players. Yeah, those uh, long Polynesian names, feel free to leave a voicemail so I don't have to read them to Gerard until I get them down. <laughs> but you have to put the pronunciation for Ryan. Yeah, yeah. It usually takes me a while. I get them down. Like, you know, you start getting them. But, like, at the very beginning, it's always hard to start like, oh, crap. Who's this? Okay. Um, but, yes, we'll do that. All right. Well, good stuff, Gerard. We got through all the questions. There was a bunch that came in uh, right on signing day. People were sending in their questions. So, sorry it took us, like, a week to get to it. But. I uh, hope you guys enjoyed the show and kind of relive a little bit of signing day and look forward to everything else that's going forward. But thanks again, Gerard. Yeah, we'll uh, have some more stuff on potential transfers in the war room. Um, we'll have some stuff. A little interesting tidbit on some support staff, too. Uh, USC may be trying to make a big move with a support staff hire. Uh, we'll get into that. It's um, going to be interesting. It's uh, a name that USC fans are familiar with. Uh, but just not sure if uh, Clay Helton's going to pull the trigger on that one. But uh, hearing from some good sources that uh, it's being pondered. Huh? That'd be good. I mean, that's that's the kind of the big question now. You know, people. There's a joke on the peristyle about Clay Helton's Rolodex, and no one has Rolodexes anymore. Um, but you know, people did wonder. <laughs> I think I started that. I, I think <laughs> I. I didn't know what I was doing when I mentioned that in one of our. We were doing coaching spotlight candidate. Uh, spotlight features and I, I said something to the effect that you know it's kind of you know the one negative about Clay Helton is going to be his Rolodex just as a figurative way of saying you know his contacts and his connections with uh, with with the coaching community he just hasn't been in a seat of power at, at any of his other jobs really I mean the offensive coordinator at Memphis was the only time where maybe he had some influence over coaching hires but really USC is the only place and so you just talk about limited connections and networks. And coaches, 
in general, like to go with people they know. It's a somewhat incestuous industry because it's about trust and you need to feel like you can trust the people you work with. And that's why a lot of coaches don't really go outside the box and go and just hire random people just that they feel are qualified. It, it, that's really more of the, the – it, it's more rare to see that. Like Willie Taggart has gone out and just hired a bunch of people. Now, I don't know. Maybe he does have relationships somewhere along the lines with a majority of those coaches, but I, I get the feeling he's just sort of going for the all-star staff type thing. And we saw New, Rick Neuheisel do that at UCLA – and it was a disaster, and it's really actually worked uh, very few times with coaches in terms of having a long-term success going out there and just hiring people that they don't know. Now, we know that you know there are, there are spots where coaches like a Nick Saban will go and get an offensive coordinator like Lane Kiffin, which he may not have really any relationship with Lane Kiffin but feels like he's the best guy for the job. But in terms of the majority of the staff, a lot of coaches – tend to go the Pete Carroll way and hire people that they know, whether there's somebody knows that they can vouch for um, just because of the trust factor, just because they feel like, you know, they don't want their, their philosophy and their culture and everything sort of um, messed with, you know, the chemistry of that. And so they want like-minded people. So that's why you see um, even with coaches that have been around a while, they're always going to go with people that they know. The problem with Clay Elton, um, the issue or the criticism that, that we had before he was hired is that he just doesn't know a lot of those people. He hasn't been around in a position where he's had a lot of jobs uh, that he could uh, you know, could feed off of that uh, with his connections. And so uh, that's where the Rolodex thing came in, and that's why people constantly use it. It's just very easy to just talk about the Rolodex figuratively. Yeah, I mean, and I think we've seen that happen at USC. There's been so many just hires that are that are known, and you just every once in a while you wanted like, wow, that was like, this is a great running back coach at like Mississippi State, and they bring him in, you know, like, and you didn't never heard of him, and it's like, oh, you just kind of want to see that, <laughs> just for, I don't know, just for something different, and just not someone that is, I don't want to say recycled, but someone that you've kind of seen around or heard the name and stuff. Uh, so the funny thing is, though, I, I would interject, you know, the one time Pete Carroll did that, and a lot of people really were criticizing him. For, for going through, you know, the guys that had been there and, and trying to hire within and not going out and getting the most qualified guy or going and getting this dynamic name. Well, the one time he did that, he brought in Jeremy Bates, and that was a disaster. True. That was an unmitigated disaster. He brought Jeremy Bates up with him to Seattle, and that just continued to be a disaster up there. And so, you know, it, it, it doesn't always work. It, it, on paper, everybody thought, wow, that's great, man. He was the, the Denver Broncos OC. He was Jay Cutler's offensive coordinator and he you know was studied under mike shanahan wow this is going to be a great hire and it just wasn't a great hire yeah i mean obviously it's got to work out chemistry wise and all that kind of stuff we have just seen that so much kind of nepotism sort of thing around usc that you do just want to but try that's coaching something. that 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 is but you know folks that's that is coaching again yeah. it's there's a trust level with with the people you work with and and that's what comes from it that's just that's just the way it goes it it's um it, it's not, you know, USC is not an outlier when it comes to that. It's just a matter of with Clay Helton, the the family is much smaller, I guess you could say. Yeah. All right. Well, good stuff. That's Gerard Martinez. Follow him on Twitter at GMart Live. You can follow me at Inside Troy. Hope you guys enjoyed this premium edition of the Peristyle Podcast, and we will talk to you next time.